Hey, how's everybody doing? All right, fair enough. It's a, it's a little warm. I got, I get that, I get that. Well, my name is Sean Salata. Um, I'm going to be teaching here this morning. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we really value, and if you've been here for any amount of time, you've, you've heard before, is that um, we are very excited and focused about the spread of the gospel through church planting. Um, that's something that we're really focused and passionate about. Um, and, and in order to do that, we are focused on raising up leaders um, in our church. And so one of, the, one of the practical ways that that happens is that um, pastors in training get to teach on, on Sunday morning. So hello, here I am. It's nice to be with you all. <laughs> so, um, it, but seriously, it is good to be worshiping with you guys on this 4th of July weekend, I guess. It's on Wednesday, so, you know, do with that, whatever. But it, it's good to be with you, and um, it, it's cool that we get to celebrate this holiday um, as Americans for, you know, what is, you know, kind of unique about our country, especially um, in its founding, you know, a, a country that was founded on the ideas of um, freedom, liberty, you know, this, this democratic republic, a, a great experiment. And so, you know, we get to celebrate that as Americans this 4th of July. And so we celebrate by grilling red meat and, um, you know, playing yard games outside and um, trying not to send ourselves to the emergency room with explosives. You know, it's just really all of the things that make us American, right? So, it, and by the way, I never really understood what all that was about. I know that probably for some of you guys, part of your 4th of July experience is, is like, you know, lighting stuff on fire in the backyard. Uh, my first exposure to that was um, when my brother-in-law, not the one that works here, um, but my brother-in-law decided to see what it would be like to light like a fistful of sprinklers on fire. Have you ever seen this before? You can, you can look it up on YouTube if you want to see it. But basically, what happens, you get a, you get a fistful of sprinklers... Uh, sparklers, you tie, them, you tie them together, put them in the ground, light them on fire, and then like nothing happens for a minute, and then it gets really bright and you can't see anymore because you've been staring at it the whole time, and then, and then that's it. It's just sort of like a smoldering pile. So it, it didn't really recommend the practice to me too much, but you know, what, what my family um, and I did on the 4th of July is we honored the, the time-honored tradition of conflict that, that makes our nation great by attending Red, White, and Boom in Columbus, Ohio. So I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this before. Uh, I'll read you a couple, of, a couple of sort of pointers off the website to give you, to paint a little picture for you. So Red, White, and Boom is the largest fireworks display in Ohio, which is very impressive, um, it's the largest single-day event in Columbus. They're expecting 400,000 people to be there. And it's one of the most recognizable displays in the Midwest, whatever that means. So basically the deal is it's a really cool fireworks display, and there are a ton, a ton, a ton of people. And uh, Columbus is along the Scioto River, and, and that's kind of where this all goes down. So that's like the, the picturesque place. If you really want to, the best view of the fireworks and the best view of the city, like that's where you go. You want, you want a spot right on the river. Now, for most people, what they would do is they would kind of treat this like a, um, like a tailgating situation. You know, they get up early in the morning, they pack the cooler full of food, they, they'd bring tons of stuff to do, and they would go in the morning and make kind of a day of it. Well... My family and I, like our great forefathers before us, preferred more of a guerrilla approach. So the goal, get a spot on the river. 
The plan of attack, step one, leave in the afternoon to go get a spot. Park on some shady side road in Columbus. <laughs> Fight with the person whose house it was or, or wherever we're at and hope that we find our car intact when we get back. Wade and push and shove through the throng of humanity on the main streets of Columbus trying to get to the river. We finally get to the river. Sit, pop a squat right in front of some family that has been there all day. <laughs> Trade barbs with them all day leading up to the fireworks and then, yeah, watch fireworks, whatever. But so the, and the fireworks are cool and everything, but really what sticks out to me was the, just the amount of, of conflict that it took to get to this place. And, and the funny thing about it, too, just as a side note, um, my mom was not a huge fan of this process. She was always like, why do we have to do this every year? Me, I was like kind of neutral. You know, that's always me, the peacemaker. But leaning favorable to the process, if we're being honest. And then, and then dad, of course, was the instigator. You know, every year it's like, we got to go, we got to do this. So it is no surprise that um, when, when I kind of got older and then inevitably when I moved out, that um, we started watching it on the TV. <laughs> so our 4th of July festivities were marked with conflict. And, and you know, conflict is actually woven throughout American history. It's kind of what marks our, our history classes um, and really the, the history of humanity as a whole. Um, at H2O, we've been looking at different ideas of our culture, different ideas just in the human experience that, that Jesus actually turned upside down. And so this week, we're going to take a look at humanity's preoccupation with conflict. And so it, it's kind of interesting you know, what, what's one of the most important requirements for a conflict? Well, you, you need someone or something to fight or to fight with, right? You need enemies. People are great at making enemies. There's actually like a name for it. Um, psychology has come up with this term. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And if you don't know what that is, I'll tell you. So it basically says that given a mistake, when somebody makes a mistake, you are more likely to blame a circumstance when you are the one that's made the mistake. When someone else has made the mistake, you are more likely to blame them as a person or some kind of intrinsic problem that they have. So it's the reason why when you're like weaving through traffic and you're running late to work, it's because like you, get, you got out of the house late and it's like you know, totally understandable and it doesn't normally happen. But when some other guy is weaving through traffic, it's because he is an idiot. It's like when you're, you're standing in the line at Starbucks and somebody is like really short with you, it's because they're just like a rude, like a really rude person. And when you are short with the barista, it's because you haven't had your coffee yet. Um, so, so this is this idea, and, and, and people do this all the time. You know, they, they do it with people they come into contact with, you do it in the car, you know, you do it with, with coworkers and bosses. But we also sort of make these big, kind of like universally recognized enemies too. You know, lots of times, rather than admit that there are complex problems going on in the world that we don't really know how to fix, we like to put a, a face on it. You know, we, we like to attach a person or a group of people to this problem, and, and it creates this sort of, you know, thing that we can then rally and fight against. Um, I know that social media is kind of like an easy punching bag, but I'm going to just go ahead and get a couple of jabs in here anyway, because it... it 
it's really easy to see this on places like, like Twitter and Facebook. You know, you see these, these posts that are like, you know, the president is a scumbag, or you see, you know, this celebrity doesn't get paid to post their opinion everywhere. You know, this group of people wants, they want everything their way, and they don't care what other people think. You see, this political party or that political party doesn't have better instincts, you know, so we, we have to fight them. And it's all over the place, especially in the last few years. It's infiltrated the way that we think and the way that we interact with people. And we become very absorbed with what's going on, you know, right in front of us. And very good at creating and fighting these enemies. So what do we do with this information? So we, we can kind of acknowledge that this is, this is what we're dealing with. Um, you know, is there anything we can do to, to make it better? You know, can we all just get along? Like, what, what's the situation? What does the Bible have to say about the state of our conflict-ridden culture? So we're going to take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 18 together. And the big idea that we're going to pull from this scripture that we're going to discover together is that our battle is spiritual, and it requires spiritual preparation. So our battle is spiritual and it requires spiritual preparation. So let's go ahead and read God's word together. So it says, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so now... When, when it comes to conflict, it really wasn't any different in the biblical world than, than it is today. The people of Jesus' day and the nation of Israel were looking for this military leader to free them from the control of the Romans. See, the people of Israel had been passed from one empire to the next for years and years, and they were waiting for God to defeat their earthly enemies. But Jesus knew what was really going on in the midst of all of this. You know, when, when he was in the garden and, and a group of guards came to, to arrest him and ultimately take him to the cross, um, Peter actually cut a guy's ear off. I don't know if you've heard this story before, but Peter cut a guy's ear off. He recognized the enemy of Jesus, and he was protecting his master and his friend. But Jesus basically said, you know, Peter, do you think there wouldn't be thousands of angels here right now if we needed to fight these guys, if, if that's what was going on? And Jesus actually healed the guy. Jesus knew that our battle wasn't against people who were wrong, but against the sin epidemic that was making humanity guilty and separated from God. He knew there was something deeper going on. He knew what Paul said in verse 12. He, he lays it out right there. For we do not fight against flesh and blood, 
And so the, the, the first idea we're going to consider is that flesh and blood enemies are often a distraction. So what if I told you that? What if all of the carrying on that we did with people right in front of us, with, with groups that we view as the enemy, what if I told you that it was all a distraction, if it was all a waste and a misdirection of our energy as believers? This, this is what the Bible says, that they're not flesh and blood. So we, we haven't gotten very far into the text, but already, what does that mean for us so far? Well, it, I guess it's kind of obvious, but if the enemy is not flesh and blood, then that means we shouldn't be fighting flesh and blood enemies. Don't be tricked into creating, naming, or fighting earthly enemies. P you know, just picking something you don't like and, and spending a bunch of energy fighting it, it is not the way that Paul advocates here. It's not the way of the Bible. Earlier in this book, earlier in Ephesians, Paul says that, that God has actually brought down the dividing line between us and God, between people, between each other. God is not a God of hostilities, but he's trying to reconcile people to himself, to reconcile people to each other. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. So we, we know that there are ideas and injustices out there, right, that are, that are counter to God's word. But as we'll see, we're not going to solve these problems by purely earthly methods and, and demonizing people or getting sucked into the whirlwind of blame and negativity and violence isn't going to actually replace injustice with truth. It's not going to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Instead, we should follow the pattern of Jesus. What did, what did Jesus do? He did his work with gentle strength. He submitted himself to mocking and abuse from his enemies. He taught us to pray for them. And ultimately, he died for his enemies. This is the example of Jesus that we have to follow. So we know that earthly conflict can distract us, but we also know that there's, there's some kind of conflict that exists in the world. It's the way that a lot of us live our life. Conflict is, is present. So what, what do we do with that? So let's pick up where we left off in verse 12. It starts, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is building up the strength and size of this true enemy. You know, it actually kind of sounds like Paul is in the boxing ring a little bit. You know, and in this corner, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, right? He's building this enemy up, and it's, it's for good reason. So let's kind of take a look. The words ruler and authority, right? It means that they have power. This enemy has power. It's called a cosmic power, in fact. And so it's not just like a little annoyance that's like just for you. This is like capital E evil. This is the cosmic power that, that is contrary to God in every place at every time. Um, it's described as the spiritual forces, of evil, and so it's not like a conflicted villain. It's not the villains we like, like Loki in the Avengers, where you know he's like a bad guy, but then when it really counts, like oh, you know he's really heartwarming. He's a good guy. You know, it's not a conflicted villain. It's it's evil, and it's in the heavenly realms. This idea of a, a supernatural place that we don't even have access to on our own strength. And even though the enemy isn't named specifically here, we we can guess who Paul is talking about. He's talking about Satan. The, the devil, the accuser. 
the Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion. He's prowling about and seeking whom he may devour. And so, like, again, the enemy is not just, like, inconvenient. He's destructive. The Bible says in, in the book of Job that, that Satan approaches God and says, reach out your hand against Job and, and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. The, the devil is malicious. You know, he, he's chaotic. And finally, worst of all, Satan tempts Jesus in hopes that he'll get Jesus to fail his mission of salvation. He hopes to make Jesus to sin so that, so that his work on the cross won't count for us. See, Satan is diametrically opposed to the gospel. He is opposed to the purposes and things of God. And so what we're beginning to see is the second idea that we want to consider is that the real enemy is spiritual and he's powerful. By ourselves, we are totally outgunned and outclassed. If we try to handle this reality on our own, we're destined for failure. So let me, let me give you kind of a little illustration. Um, I don't know if you, any of you guys were like this. If you're not, that's okay. I'll, I'll wear it on my own. Um, when I was in elementary school, I had sort of a, a superhero alter ego. I was the blue captain. Yeah, because I had this little blue jacket, right? And, and, it had a, and it had a hood that when it went up, it had a little Velcro thing, and it kind of looked like a ninja mask. So, you know, I thought it was really cool. So I just wanted to, you know, to save the day and be a hero to everyone. And what's more, I was going to have my opportunity here in a minute because in my kindergarten classroom, there were two classrooms right next to each other, and they had these doors that opened out to the playground, right? So... Our classroom's door always worked, and we got to go out and play. But the, the other classroom door would get stuck, at least I think. I mean, maybe the teacher kept it locked and, like, laughed at the kids or something. I don't know. But, but the, the door would always get stuck, and they would, like, push and push and push on it, and eventually it would open up, and they'd all come busting out of the classroom. So one day I saw this from the other side. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the door, and, and I could just, I, I remember this clearly in my head. You know, 20 little, like, faces and hands and, you know, cheeks and, like, elbows all pushing up against this door. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I'll save you. And I run up to the door, and I did not save them. <laughs> Instead, I woke up flat on my back, dazed and confused because I got, yeah, and I just ate it. So I'm looking up at my kindergarten teacher like, what happened? So if we treat these spiritual realities in, in the same way, you know, if we deny them, if we attempt to handle them on our own strength, um, if we're preoccupied with these earthly conflicts, we're going to end up flat on our backs. And so we've seen so far that the battle's not physical, but it's spiritual, that we're unequipped to handle it on our own. So what, what's the solution? Well, verse 10 continues, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Specifically, it says, put on the whole armor of God. So our, our third point here is that spiritual enemies require spiritual weaponry. Now, for those of you that have heard this taught on before, you are expecting that at this point in the teaching, I'm going to dazzle you with my knowledge of Roman weaponry. I am not going to dazzle you with my knowledge of Roman weaponry. Yeah. For those, for those of you who, um, who are just tuning in, uh, a lot of times when, when, people read, um, when people read this passage of Scripture, they will take um, the, the pieces of armor and, and attach them to 
um, the spiritual concepts that Paul talks about and, and attach these special significances. It's like, here's why he picked the breastplate. Here's why he picked the belt, um, which I think that's fine. But actually, if you look at another place in the New Testament, you'll see that Paul talks about the armor of God again, and he uses different pieces of armor for different spiritual concepts, and he leaves some out. I think what Paul is trying to do is just in the same way that he uses this imagery and he hypes up this spiritual enemy, now he wants us to use our imaginations to, to think about suiting up, strapping on these spiritual concepts one at a time, preparing for the battle that, that's at hand. And so we're, we're going to talk more about the spiritual concepts that are connected to each piece of armor. Because each piece of armor, each aspect of the armor of God equips the Christian to repel spiritual attacks. So we're, we're going to kind of fly through these here. Um, but first we look at truth. Okay, and truth, obviously enough, resists falsehood. The more we care about and soak up what's true, the less affected we'll be by the lies put forth by the devil. Righteousness. Righteousness limits the areas uh, of temptation and accusation in our lives. When we value and grow in true inward righteousness, not this sort of like external keeping up with appearance righteousness, but righteousness that, that comes from a, a love and concern for God, um, we're going to actually be less tempted to sin. We're not perfect. We're not going to never mess up. We'll be less tempted. And not only that, but there will be less areas that other people can kind of come in and accuse us of. You know, one of the, one of the real tragedies of, of the church is that people who are watching us look at the way that we act sometimes, and they're able to accuse. They're able to point at something that we've done that's contrary to, to God and what he says and say, you know, aha, I got you. you. You shouldn't trust these guys because of this or that thing. Righteousness limits the ability for that to happen. Gospel readiness. The readiness given by the gospel of peace is the way that the Bible says it. It's kind of hard to, to nail down exactly what this means, but I think it's this idea that being soaked in the gospel, being prepared to, to live like Jesus, you know, actually prepares us to face trouble and share Jesus. So gospel readiness. The, this next idea in the armor of God is faith. This enduring hope and trust in God and his promises. Um, you know, it's not just sort of a wishy-washy, like, ah, I have faith, so that means I don't have to have any evidence. It means I don't have to explain anything because I just have faith. It means that the evidence is God and who he is and what he's done in the past. And based on that evidence, based on that trust, we're able to face new problems. See, faith helps us to deal with doubt and discouragement because doubt is not actually a killing blow to your Christian beliefs. If you've ever doubted before, you are in great company and a strong faith actually helps you to deal with that doubt, to understand it, and to come out on the other side having grown instead of being defeated by doubt. Salvation. Salvation means that we are eternally safe when we do fail. And I want to kind of stop on this point for a minute because perhaps the, the most high stakes aspect of this spiritual battle that we're dealing with is how easy it actually is for us to be taken down. See, God did make people to be in relationship with him, but he also made people to be in relationship with him on his terms. God is holy. He's transcendent. He's perfect and pure. The Bible says that his eyes are too pure to look on sin, that, that in him is light and no darkness at all. 
So even though God like tolerates imperfection in his creation, he has so much grace. He's calling people to himself. In the, in the final analysis, he cannot and will not have fellowship with sin. And all mankind has sin. You know, just like Kent talked about last week, um, even our good deeds are viewed as dirty rags. They have some sin mingled in. And so what this means is that all the spiritual enemies would have to do is, is hit us once, one time, and, and we would be taken down. But salvation actually defeats that whole strategy, nullifies it. The Apostle Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He tells us in Romans 5.20 that through Jesus, where sin increases, every place that sin increases, grace increases all the more. It overrules, it overtakes sin. This is the gospel. This is the power of what Jesus did for us. Through his perfect life and willing death on our behalf, he took the punishment that would separate us from God so that we could be reunited with him, the place that we were meant to have in God's world. Salvation protects us even when we do fall. It means that we can never be fully defeated by Satan. That, that's good news. So the last two pieces of armor, the spirit-empowered word of God, it allows God's agenda to rule in your life and not Satan's. Rather than like believing that we're powerless before the forces in our life or you know, kind of on the other end that we're worthy to just rule everything that we see, God sets the agenda from his word. And finally, prayer. Prayer lets it be on earth as it is in heaven. It's our way of communicating with God and asking him to make the earth look more like heaven. You know, we know that we're never gonna get there. There's always gonna be evil. There's always gonna be the, these spiritual forces at work, but God acts when we pray. And so each of these spiritual aspects that we just, you know, totally don't have time to, to go all the way into but they, they prepare us to deal with the attacks of the devil, a spiritual enemy that wants our death and spiritual ineffectiveness. And so if we're supposed to put this armor on, then like how do we do it? You know, that's what it says. Put on, take up the full armor of God. Well, I think for one, the Bible says that we have not because we ask not. And so we need, we need to be in prayer to God asking for him to grow us in these aspects uh, of the armor of God. Second, you know, I think this is a great passage to meditate through. You know, this, this idea that we are in cooperation with God. As God does for us what we can't do for ourselves in growing up these aspects, we can meditate through it and seek, how can I grow in the aspects of the armor of God? Because ultimately, what will happen as we look through these, these pieces of the armor of God is that we're going to look more like Jesus, and we're going to be prepared for the spiritual battle that the Bible says is there. And so, Kind of before, before I move on, before we wrap up, uh, I want to hit a point that I hinted at earlier. You know, I, I said earlier that earthly enemies are like kind of a distraction. So does that mean that, that we're supposed to understand that doing things in our earthly life is pointless? You know, does it mean that there's like a demon behind every rock? You know, should I spend my whole day praying in my house and like never leave because the battle is all spiritual anyway? I don't think that's the case. I think that spiritual, the spiritual perspective that we're talking about, understanding the spiritual battle, puts our earthly stuff in context. So like, I wanna show you something. Maybe it's dumb, maybe you've seen it before. So I want you to take your hand and put it right in front of your face. So if you, if you take your hand and you put it right in front of your face, 
you, you have, you can't really see what you're looking at. I mean, you know it's your hand because I just told you to put it there. But as you, as you move it out, you begin to see, like, okay, you know, so there are some creases there. I can, I can see my ring. If I turn it over, I can see there's like a weird amount of hair. You know, as, as I move it out, I start to see it in context. Now, let, let's just pretend something crazy for a minute. Let's just pretend that I moved my hand out to find that it was impaled by something. It had been like, you know, driven right through. Would I just like leave it there? It's like, oh, huh, that's weird. No, I would probably do something about it. I'd take it out. I'd go to the doctor. Please help. I, my hand is impaled. This is what it's like um, when we put our earthly stuff in context. It doesn't mean that we're not going to do anything about it. It means that we understand it in its proper context. We can see all of what's going on instead of having it right in front of us, blocking us from what's truly going on. Taking up the armor of God allows us to put these things in context, which allows us to engage, to be like Christ, not disengage. And so our, our last point is that this conflict, it's demanding, but we have the means not just to survive but to actually fight back and to win. We have the means not just to survive, but to fight back and win. And so we talked about salvation, meaning that we can never be spiritually killed. You know, if we've turned away from sin, if we've trusted in Jesus, we, we have that on lock. But we can get stopped up. We can get sidetracked. We can be rendered ineffective. You know, it's what happens when we accept Jesus and become a Christian, but we don't put on this armor. It's possible to live a Christian life without much power. But the armor of God that we're given to put on and use actually isn't for that purpose. Paul tells us why we're supposed to put it on. He says in verse 11 that the armor of God is for standing against the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, he says that the armor allows us to stand and withstand it's this idea, it's not just for surviving. It's not a bomb shelter. It's armor. It protects you, but it protects you to do a job, which is to fight back. I think far too often, we as Christians can kind of allow ourselves to get beat up. You know, whether it's looking at the world and wondering if we can do anything about it, whether it's not putting up a fight against a sin pattern, whether it's kind of like just not really thinking about God and sort of living our, living our lives and not acknowledging him, we let ourselves get beat up. We can be guilty of settling. The armor of God is not just for settling. The Christian life is not just for settling. In Christ, we're not promised ease and comfort at every turn, but we are promised the ability to fight back in the short term and in the long term, ultimate victory. And so our battle, it's spiritual. It requires spiritual preparation. Flesh and blood enemies are often a distraction from the whole picture. The real enemy is spiritual and powerful. Spiritual enemies require the spiritual weaponry of truth, righteousness, gospel readiness, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. The spiritual conflict is demanding, but God has given us the means to win. To the Christian, make sure you're in the fight. Don't waste your energy on earthly fights but ask God to empower you with the armor of God so that you can move through your earthly life with spiritual significance. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first off, thanks for hanging out with us this morning. Thanks for worshiping with us this Sunday. Second, 
This battle is actually going on right now, whether you choose to engage with it or not. If you entrust your life to Jesus, this word says that you will be given the means to have victory. It may not be cushy, it may not be easy, but there will be victory. All right, let's pray as I invite the band up here.